0: Welcome to Right to the Point, a podcast featuring honest conversation about biblical solutions to America's cultural challenges. Hi, I'm Tim Throckmorton of LifePoint Ministries. To learn more about LifePoint and to access past episodes of Right to the Point podcasts and commentary, and if you'd like to support the podcast, just visit LifePointUSA.org. We're so glad you've joined us today, and in this episode, we're going to continue a conversation that we began last time about America's godly heritage. And to to do so, I'm uh, blessed to have back with us a good friend, longtime friend, Bill Federer. Bill, welcome to Right to the Point. Tim, great to be with you. Yeah, we, we've known each other quite a while, and you've been at the church I've pastored, you've done a lot of radio with me, and you're consistently um, deep in information. So I, I I love to draw from the well of Bill Federer and uh, the ministry that, uh, uh, that you lead. It's, um, uh, you know, this is American Minute is multifaceted, the books that are that are that are vast. There, the selection of books that you've published, AmericanMinute.com, folks. You need to go there, check it out. My favorite, my first and favorite, I think the one I met you because of was America's God and Country Encyclopedia of Quotations, and at last count, over a half a million copies have sold, probably more than that now. I'm not sure how up to date my data is here, but Bill, uh, thank you for the difference you make and the value you add. To America in this critical moment, I appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you, Kim. It's great to be with you.
0: So, last time we talked about the uh, our Amer- America's godly heritage, and you took us way back. You took us back into the 1500s, and how that the Puritans were a key part of uh, our founding and our heritage. Coming in, and I think it was King George who looked at the Puritans and realized that they were the part of the the problem for him here. Uh, you also took us to uh, our founding era, talking about the Muhlenberg brothers, uh, love their story, and wh- what they did, what they, how they responded to the moment. So let's kind of start again there. Let's kind of pick up in that era, and the pastors that were involved in our founding, their influence, in their writings, uh, and then maybe kind of take us through the journey from then until now. Because America certainly doesn't reflect those founding virtues, does it?
1: Uh, No. And uh, one of the things I did in my book on socialism is I tracked the four stages to go from a covenant form of government that the pilgrims and Puritans had to socialism. And it's interesting that removing of God is the key change. And so the the pilgrims and Puritans were breaking away from a king. The most common form of government in world history is kings. Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. You know, the Jewish commentator Josephus said Nimrod wanted to build the tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. And (laughs) that he made everyone in town bake bricks or he would kill them. And so it was defiant against God, oppressive over man. God comes down, confuses the languages and the people scatter. But it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel. And every time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because with the latest military advancements, the kings can kill more people. Instead of killing with a rock like Cain killed Abel, they can kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a phalanx spear that the Greeks had or a scimitar sword that the Muslims had or a gunpowder that the Chinese invented. And with technological advancements, Kings could track more people. And so uh, writing started as an accounting method for Kings. And have you ever tallied where you draw the lines one, two, three, four, and then a line across for five. And, um, anyway, so, um, Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was called a census, right? That was like new technology back then. If he could add 5G and cell phones and cameras and satellites, he would attract people that way. And uh, there's just something about dictators that want to count and track everybody. Uh, and of course, David was convicted for doing what taking a census and God said, no. And, um, uh, and so the, uh, the idea is that these Calvinist Puritans came up with an idea of how to rule ourselves without a King. And it was a covenant form of government. So it's, it's not just people getting rights from God. It's people getting rights from God and then taking care of their neighbor voluntarily because they're doing it as unto God. Yeah. Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. And you get, uh, you know, there's these rights and blessings from God and you're, you're fair to your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. And this God is not a respecter of persons. And so it's a sort of like a triangle. And, 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 um, but in the century after the pilgrims, there was the age of enlightenment with the scientific revolution and Kepler discovering laws of planetary motion and Robert Boyle discovering laws of pressure and, uh, Isaac Newton discovering laws of gravity and laws of optics. And so some theologians said, well, gee, maybe God made everything with laws. And like a guy winds up a co- clock with complicated gears and then goes for a walk. Yeah, everything's here. and Yeah, God did make it, but he's not involved. He's distant. He's far removed. He's impersonal. The ultimate of this is God is some impersonal force in the universe, right? Yeah. And so you go from the pilgrim idea that there is a, a living God that has a— intimate relationship with each of us to this distant God. Well, the century after the French, uh, the age of enlightenment is the French revolution. And that's a social contract with no God. So covenant turns into social contract and there is no God. And so you get your group, your rights from the social group, yeah. the, the state, the, the mob and, uh, What what they give, they can take away. And so you you, uh, have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he is the one who wrote The Social Contract. And he said, if the state says to an individual, it's expedient for the state that you should die, that individual ought to die because his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. And so a century after the French Revolution is you have Marxism and socialism where the state is God. And they literally said that. So Hegel was the German philosopher at the university of Berlin who had a student named Karl Marx and Hegel said, the state is God walking on earth. The state is our mortal God, all the worth which the human being possesses. He possesses only through the state. And, um, and so this is the idea that, okay, there's no God. And so there's no right or wrong. So who decides what's right and wrong? Well, the state does. And, um, and, and, you know, the the Greeks did not believe in eternal life. And they thought, well, the best you could do is have have a statue built to yourself and you'll be remembered after you die. And even though you will or you won't be existing, you'll you can sort of exist in a weird way in people's memory. Well, Hegel took it the next step and says, Well, you don't want to just be remembered. If you can start an organization that continues after your death. Then you can sort of keep on going, you know, with this organization. What's the biggest organization you can create? A government. Yeah. And so your highest purpose in life is to create and perpetuate big government. So you exist for the government's benefit. Whereas our founding father said, no, there's a creator and he gives us rights and the government exists to guarantee to us our God-given rights. So removing God transitions the government from your servant to your master. Removing God is like you, the government's purpose is not the policeman in front of your house protecting your house. It's the policeman moving into your house, keeping you prisoner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so that's the key. That's what transitioned from the pilgrims ruling themselves uh, without a king, uh, rights from God, fair to your neighbor, generous to your neighbor because you're doing as unto God. To the age of enlightenment, there's a distant God and covenant turns into social contract. To the French Revolution, the social contract would know God to Marxism and socialism where the state is God. Yeah. And um, uh, there's a great quote from Eisenhower. He said, in some lands, the state claims to be the author of human rights. If the state gives rights, it can and inevitably will take away those rights. Hear, hear. Our founding fathers had to refer to the creator in order to make their revolutionary experiment make sense. We had to say there's a creator who gives us these God-given rights. Therefore, the government's purpose is to guarantee to us our God-given rights. And um, so we had to say that there was a creator and the king of England was infringing on our creator-given rights. And therefore, he was abrogating his throne. He was neglecting his responsibilities. And therefore, like an abusive parent, uh, we don't have to submit to him. Uh, right. And so we were able. But if there is no creator, then what the king giveth, the king can take it away. So, <laughs> so our founders had to claim that we had rights from the creator. Right.
0: That's right. And, and so this this freedom that was birthed in 1776 through the Revolutionary War, the establishment of this birth birth certificate, our constitution, uh, that has brought more freedom and blessing to the world than any other nation in history uh, has, has, is not what it was before. And so what, what, how did it begin, begin to be torn down? I mean, in, in a very real way, how did it begin? Maybe is there a moment? Is there a particular movement that began a century or two ago? How exactly uh, would you frame that and help folks to understand how we got here? And, and then we'll talk about what we can do in this moment.
1: Yeah, so I wrote a book called Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And the subtitle is How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. So the most common form of government in world history is kings. The relatively few attempts for people to rule themselves without a king are called democracies and republics. Ancient Israel, the first 400 years out of Egypt, they had no king. Uh, Ancient Greece— from uh, King Solon, who set up a democracy and then left town so that the people of Athens had to do it. And, um, and then the Roman Republic for 500 years, it was a Republic. Now the difference between democracy and Republic In a, the word democracy has two meanings. One is a general reference to a popular government. Now, not popular like you're, you know, voting on American Idol. Uh, It's, It means the population, the populace, the people, Popula means people. And so the population gets to rule themselves without a king. So during the, you know, FDR comparing America to the Nazis, Truman during the Cold War comparing America to the Soviets, their speeches would be filled with things that says we're a democracy, um, but they're a dictatorship, you know. Yeah. So that's the general word. But as a functioning form of government. A democracy only worked on a very small scale where every citizen had to be at every meeting every day to talk about every issue. So in Athens, they had 6,000 citizens, and every day you had to go to the marketplace, the agora. And if you did not keep up with what they're talking about today, you are called an idiotus. An <laughs> idiot. It's like he doesn't know what we're talking about. He's he's behind the time. He's out of the loop. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so a republic is where you take care of your family and your farm, and you have someone in your place that goes to the market every day. They are your representative. Mm-hmm. Easy way to remember is the word republic starts with three letters R E P, and the word representative starts with three letters R E P. So a republican form of government is a representative. You're still the king. You, you're just ruling through your representatives so you can do other stuff during the day. Yeah. But democracies and republics are attempts for the people to rule themselves without a king. But what if the king wants the power back? Does he just ask for it? Hi, I'm I'm the king, and I I, I want um, authority over your life. Um, uh, can you give it to me? Okay, sure. Here you go. I was waiting <laughs> for you to come around. Here, here you can take control of my life. No, and so there's two methods in which king, kings can take the power back. Fear. When people are afraid, they'll give up their freedom in exchange for security ah. and and free stuff. Yeah. Right. And so uh, it's like a drug dealer takes over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with guns and get everybody in fear and they panic and submit to the mob and pay extortion protection money or the drug dealer. So nice. He's giving away free drugs. Right. He's giving away free drugs. And uh, and then. You want more free drugs? You're going to have to incrementally give up your freedoms. Yeah. And so it's a, um, a, a fast route and a slow route, right? A front-door approach and a back-door approach. It's like a hunter catches animals either through guns or bait, yeah. right? Sets a trap, lures the animal. You know, I was reading about how to catch wild pigs. <laughs> okay. And they say you, you put a post in the ground and you throw some corn down and the pigs come and eat the corn and ignore the post. The next day, there's two posts in the ground and some corn. Next yeah. day, three and four, and you start putting them in a semicircle, and then you start closing the semicircle, and you keep throwing the corn out every day until pretty soon there's just a little opening. And the pigs squeeze through the opening, and they eat the corn, and you close the gate, <laughs> and you caught yourself some wild pigs. There you go. Right? And, and so you you get people to – so this is called uh, the Great Reset. So it's a twofold thing. One is they want to create a global – Collapse a crisis that makes everybody panic and say government will give you control of your life. Just just give me a CBDC central bank digital currency so that I can uh, keep the economy going. And 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 yes, you can track me and and turn it off and do your ESG score and everything. But you need a, a crisis that makes people pan a pandemic something that makes them surrender their bodies and their freedoms to the government. That's the fear side. But then there's the, the, the dependent side, right? You want to get everybody to receive free money from the government. And then the government says, oh, you want to continue this free money. Well, you're going to have to incrementally give up some more of your privacy, some more of your freedom, some more of this, that. And um, so you, you look at the, uh, the scriptures. There's a verse that says, the fear of man bringeth a snare. So fear brings a snare, a trap. And so that's what it says, that when people are afraid, they will trade their freedom for security, they'll be trapped. And so whenever you feel yourself getting into fear, stop. Yeah, good because point. Because that means you're, in the Bible over and over again, it says, fear not, fear not, be fear not, have faith, yeah. do not tremble, nor be dismayed, right? So, so fear not. And then the second is, every man, when he is tempted, is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. So it's your lusts that can, Uh, trap you so it's either fear or 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 the lust and um and so i in my book on socialism i go through how to create fear you have to create discord when there's unity there's it's all good right but then when you create discord then you have conflict then you have war then you have insecurity and could you you could you do that by by making certain groups dislike other groups (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah and uh and so it's interesting, I was researching this in the Bible. And so in heaven, there's only one will for there to be peace. Mm-hmm. It is God's will. It is a good will. He made you out of nothing. He loves you. He wants to spend eternity with you. It's a good will. And so we pray the, the our father, Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're praying his will. Even Jesus in the garden, sweat drops of blood and said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. There's only going to be one will in heaven. So part of our life's journey is to get your will beaten out of you (laughs) because you are not going to take your will to heaven. There's only God's will and and you better submit to it. Now, when Satan said, I will be like the most high, I will put my throne above the throne of God. I will, I will. Five times Satan says, I will. He has got his will. It is not God's will. There are two wills in heaven. There is conflict and there's war. There's war in heaven. And Satan's cast out. And so Satan goes into the garden. And what does he do? He sows discord. The word devil in Greek is diabolos, which means to divide. Yeah. And then he gets Cain to kill Abel. And he brings discord, brings division. And then there's an interesting story of Gideon deceits 100,000 Midianites. There is no threat to Israel after that. It is at peace. But Gideon has an illegitimate son named Abimelech, and he wants power. So he goes to the town of Shechem, and he engages in race politics. Critical race theory, right? (gasps) He says, is it better for you that the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your flesh and your bone." Wow. Identify with me on a fleshly level, and then it says the men of Shechem said, "Well, we got to support him because he is our brother." And then they go to the, he goes to the temple, the the treasury in town, the temple of Baal and he takes money to hire protesters and rioters, anti-Blm <laughs> time. It says, and they gave him gave him three score and ten pieces of silver, out of which Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons, which followed him. Wow. And what did they do? Violence. Yeah. And they went into his father's house and slew the sons of Gideon. And then the men of Shechem made Abimelech king. So here you have a country completely at peace, no threat. But on the inside, you have somebody breaking people into groups saying, hey, side with me. I'm the same flesh and bone as you are. And and let's take money. Let's hire rioters. Let's destabilize. And then it gets everybody in panic. And then we can usurp power. Wow. And that model is used over and over again. Yeah. And so uh, you have um, Machiavelli, 500 years ago, Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they always fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of these Italian city-states, it would stop the infighting between them. So he had a good end, and so he came up with this idea, the ends justifies the means. Oh, The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end because it'll stop this internal fighting that any means necessary to get there is justified. like cheat, steal. So if a prince wants to conquer a city in his quest to unify Italy and the city does not want to be conquered, they would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals like Abimelech did, hired vain and worthless persons to riot and smash windows and set things on fire, the people will panic and cry out for help. And the prince will come in and say, I'll help. And he gets rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the mess. Nobody would know the better for it. And everyone praises the prince as a yeah. hero. Yeah. So it's it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. And then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything <laughs> for it and even thank you for being there.
0: Bill, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, the the absence of civic understanding in our culture today, knowing our history, but also knowing how government works and other governments worked and or didn't work. Without that, people don't don't know anything about government. You pick any any uh, primetime news anchor, they've sent people out into the streets. They've asked them questions that my eight-year-old grandson knows the answer to about history or about geography, and they don't know the answers to those. And so this our culture today is ripe for the picking, uh, for a tyrant to to rise up. It's just
1: custom made, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, um, so, so the Machiavelli idea, there's a term called Machiavellianism where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. You know, that quote a little more recently with Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste. It's an opportunity to do important things that you otherwise wouldn't have done. So you and I see a crisis. Our response is how can we help people through it? They see a crisis. Their response is how can we usurp power through it? You know, I was listening to a speech of Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal at right. Stanford University, and he quoted a scripture of all things, First Thessalonians 5, and he said, The motto of the Antichrist is peace and safety. And he's talking about these globalists, and he says we should never uh, give up our fear of a globalist, totalitarian government. He says, I think we need to be less afraid of Armageddon and more afraid of the Antichrist. And it's like, wow. First of all, it's interesting, Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, quoting scripture, and warning about these globalist, one-world government people. But what's he talking about? Less afraid of Armageddon, well, Armageddon, the world's going to end. Uh, climate change, uh, the, everything's going to be terrible. We, we need somebody to save us. And along comes this Antichrist saying, peace and safety. I'll save you from the Armageddon. Just wow. give me all the control of your life. Yeah. And so here's Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, saying, we need to be less afraid of this world crisis and more afraid of the people that are going to save us from the world crisis. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That is right. That's right.
0: Bill, and, um, this is good. This is good stuff. We're going to have about five minutes here, and I know I, I could listen to you all day. And, and folks, go to AmericanMinute.com. These books, especially what he's quoting and talking about now—socialism, the real history from Plato to the president to the present—families uh, who are homeschooling, Christian schools, pastors—you ought to read this. Uh, this is good information to help you and your people understand what's happening. So continue, Bill. I, I want to get that in uh, b- because we, we need, everybody
1: needs to know and understand these principles. Right. So the British Empire became the biggest empire on planet Earth. The sun never sat on the British. Empire. How did they get so big? Did they just walk into a country, right? Uganda, Kenya, India. Do they say, hi, oh, we, um, we're here. We want to be the biggest empire on planet Earth. So, so give us control of your country. Oh yeah. Okay. Here are the keys. We were waiting for you. Is that how it happened? (laughs) No. No. So let's look at how the British took over India. They landed in Bengal in 1714 and opened a trading post that turned into a trading fort, which turned into them having guns and them giving guns to one kingdom and then giving guns to another kingdom and then sowing discord between the kingdoms, right? The Diabolos, right? The devil sowing discord until the two kingdoms broke out in fighting each other and bloodied each other up and weakened each other. And then when they weakened each other up really bad, the British came in to restore order and they took control of both kingdoms. And then they did it again and again and again until they took over all of India. I was with a Bishop Lawari of Uganda and he was telling me there's 56 tribes in Uganda. And the British come in and would study them and say, okay, which ones can be the victims and which ones can be the oppressors? And they would stir them up to fight each other. And then they would take control of Uganda. And then uh, they tried doing it in America during the Revolutionary War. The British landed in Canada. General Johnny Burgoyne meets with the Mohawk Indians who had reached an equilibrium with the settlers. They were sort of getting along. And the British say – hey, we want you to go in front of the British Army and scalp the Americans. And they sowed this discord, and it was so bad that it's mentioned in the Declaration of Independence as one of the reasons we're rebelling against the king. The king has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring the inhabitants of our frontiers under the attack of the Indian savages whose no rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. And then the British did it again during the War of 1812. Yeah. They controlled Pensacola, Florida, just north of Fort Mims, Alabama. And the British go to the Red Stick Indians. The French pronunciation of Red Stick is Baton Rouge. Uh-huh. And they, they go to the Red Stick and promise them money for scalps. And so the Indians take Fort Mims, Alabama and capture 500 people and then proceed to scalp all 500 people. And the historical marker says Creek Indians had been armed by the British at Pensacola in this phase of the War of 1812. I mean, do the British really care about these Red Stick Creek Indians? No, no, they're coming in sowing division because they want to take over the whole country. Yeah. And so Karl Marx called this critical theory, and you break people into groups and you pit them against each other, and then when uh, economically, racially, socially religiously, and you pit them against each other as victims and oppressors, haves and have-nots, and when it destabilizes the country with fear and panic, then everybody begs for some power to come in and restore order, and that's when you usurp power and um, install Soviet dictatorship.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But Bill, your book, I, I have it in my hand, Socialism, uh, that uh, everybody needs to get. Go to AmericanMinute.com. Uh, support the ministry. You need these books. I like how you ended it, Uh, and I think that's how I want to kind of end our time together today. You quote Ronald Reagan from 1983, uh, who quoted Malcolm Mugridge, the brilliant English commentator, the most important happening in the world today is the resurgence of Christianity in the Soviet Union, demonstrating that the whole effort sustained over 60 years of brainwash— To brainwash the Russian people into accepting materialism has been a fiasco, and then you, as you always do, point people to Jesus, whose message, whose uh, life truly brings hope, and reminding us that we could still move mountains. It's not hopeless, and just in uh, 30 seconds, Bill, uh, what would you say to bring hope to those who are here
1: in America today? Well, the same crises that they're using to get people into fear and consolidate control, it's in times of crises that people turn to people turn to Christ, right? You know, most people yeah. don't come to Christ when everything's fine and dandy. There's some crises, debt, that, that discouragement, divorce, depression, and it's almost like the same crises is going to cause some people to. Uh, crater in fear and submit to the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast. But that same crisis is going to cause other people to turn to Christ and have a great revival. And so it's a dividing point where the bride of Christ, every romance novel builds up to a decision-making moment, a forsaking of all others and choosing the one. And so I think God's pushing the world to a decision-making moment some people are going to choose the all others. They want to be liked and friended and followed. And other people are going to say, forget that. All I care about is the one, Jesus. And so this is this is our moment. This is the crisis. This is the time for us to make this decision. And, uh, and I can just say, uh, Jesus is the one you want to decide <laughs> for. And he has eternal life for you. So God bless you. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you for tuning in to learn more about LifePoint, to access past episodes of the podcast and commentary. If you want to support the podcast, visit lifepointusa.org. And I want to encourage you to go to AmericanMinute.com. It's been our privilege to have with us Bill Federer, and you're a good friend and a great American. God bless you, Bill. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Tim.